Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the second interpolated episode. We're going to be interpolated again in the podcast, Volume with Dante. Sorry about that, but it just seems a good place here to stop. We had an episode earlier about purgatory and where the idea comes from. This episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I want to talk to you about five biblical passages that help us understand how the notion of purgatory develop. Now, I want to remind you that I am not religious, that I am not holding this up as doctrine, nor is this a sermon on the development of purgatory, nor is this an apologetic for why you should believe in purgatory. I want to explain to you five pieces of the Bible that the developers of the notion of purgatory used to finally codify this doctrine just before Dante. Remember, this is brand new territory. It is being brought to the forefront and accepted by the church in the 1200s. Dante is writing Purgatorio in the early 1300s. Where did they get this idea? And where did they get the justification for this idea? There are lots of classical sources that we could cite, Homer's Afterlife, Virgil's, other pieces that we could cite to show what the afterlife was like. But Purgatory itself is an interesting diversion. Most visions of the afterlife include a good place and a bad place. Purgatory doesn't fit quite into either. Now, everyone in Purgatorio is redeemed, so it is the way to the good place, but it still exists as, to use Thomas Aquinas' fancy words, a tertium quid, a third thing, something that doesn't fit the scholastic, nice, even categories. Let's look at five biblical passages that can give us some idea about where the doctrine of purgatory came from. I'm going to do these in order as they appear in the Bible. And in so doing, I am using the new revised standard version of the Bible. You might have another translation at hand, but accept it for what it is and maybe just sit back and listen to me read this. I'm in Psalm 49, and I'm in a verse that talks about Sheol. And before I get to this verse, let me just say a little bit about Sheol. The ancient uh, understanding of the afterlife, if we kind of accept the Tanakh and Torah, the Jewish writings about God, the idea of Sheol is a grave, a pit, the underworld. It's underground somewhere. It may be, some scholars think, originally just a notion for the hole in the ground they put you in. But over time, this hole in the ground becomes more and more of a place, and then something happens to it. This is what I want to focus on. This is Psalm 49, and I'm at verses 13 through 15, and let me read them to you. Such is the fate of the foolhardy, the end of those who are pleased with their lot. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd straight to the grave they descend, and their form will waste away. Sheol will be their home. But God will ransom my soul 
from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. We get this idea that the grave is directly connected to shale, that there is some way that the pit underground is the destination for those who are foolhardy. But over the course of the notion of shale in the what we would say is the Old Testament in Christian terms, the Tanakh in Jewish terms, over the course of it, shale starts to divide. It seems to have an upper part and a lower part, or it seems to have a better part or a not-so-good part. Now, here, the psalmist is saying that he hopes that God will ransom his soul from the power of shale, and this may be a cry for present deliverance. In other words, don't let me go down to the grave just yet. But even if that's the original intent— Over time, theologians begin to look at passages like this and say, oh, wait, there's a way out of the pit, out of shale. Shale itself, which seemed a unified spot, the grave, is starting to divide into pieces, or you can get out of it, or there seems sometimes to be upper and lower parts of it. Those divisions that start to set in in an undifferentiated pit are going to lead us toward the deductions that theologians, Christian theologians, will make to justify purgatory. The second passage is in the book of Second Maccabees, and this is the most problematic for Protestants, since Protestants don't accept the book of Second Maccabees as scriptures. However, other parts of the Christian church definitely do. At the end of Judas Maccabeus's campaigns, Judas tries to find some men who have been slaughtered in the campaigns and essentially pay honor to their deaths. This is chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 39 and read all the way out to the end of the chapter. Watch what happens here. On the next day, as had now become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kindred in the sepulchres of their ancestors. Then under the tunic of each of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. So let's stop. So they're picking up the bodies of the fallen the, the who fought the good fight for the Maccabees, And yet, under their garments, they're finding bits of uh, other cultic practices, amulets, other pieces of jewelry worn for other gods and other cultic practices. I'm going on in the text. It became clear to all that this was the reason the men had fallen. Oh, so they fell because they essentially were wearing idolatrous mm, trinkets around their necks. So they all blessed the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge who reveals the things that are hidden, and they turned to supplication, praying that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. Oh, this is the big deal. So you can pray that sins, even as mortal as idolatry, can be blotted out. The noble Judas, I'm on in the text, exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as the result of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. Oh, more. 
So not only can you somehow pray for the forgiveness of sins of the dead, but you can make alms offerings or offerings of money in some kind and somehow remit the sins of the dead. This, of course, is leading, as you can tell, straight to purgatory. You will know that the authors of the doctrine of purgatory, those who began to codify the whole notion of this tertium quid, this third realm, love this passage. I'm moving on in it. In doing this, Judas acted very well and honorable, taking account of the resurrection. Oh, resurrection. Wow. So this thing that you do, these prayers and these offerings, can somehow aid because of the coming resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for all who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead. Made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. Now, this doesn't actually say that these dead are in any location. The notion of where they are is left unanswered. Did they go down to Sheol? Are they in some pit in the underworld? Where are they? But it is clear that these guys were fighting on the right side and that you can offer prayers and also offerings as a way to help them out to advance them toward the coming resurrection of the dead. That all is increasingly intriguing, but it leaves open the question of where are they at this current moment? What are you praying for? Are they being tormented? What exactly is going on with them? You'll notice, again, that's all left open-ended in the passage. Instead, the passage focuses on what the living can do for the dead. This is a newish idea, an idea that the living could do something for the dead. This will become increasingly important in Purgatorio, particularly in Cantos 3 and 4 ahead of us. Now the biggie. (laughs) I saved the biggie for the middle of the five passages from the Bible. This is in the Gospel of Luke. I'm at Luke chapter 16, and I am at verses 19 through 26. This story is the one that we could say is the groundbreaker for purgatory. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Gross. That's all I can say. Gross. Okay, on to the story. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. Oh, here it comes. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, Where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. Just think about what's going on right here. We have communication amongst various regions of the afterlife. They're talking to each other across a chasm. But most importantly to the theology of purgatory is not where the rich man is. By and large, over and over again, theologians determine that where he is is what we would now call hell. But where's the poor guy? Where is Abraham? If you want to get really technical about this, some theologians claim that since this story is being told before Jesus dies and descends into hell, that means they're all in limbo because Abraham would be in limbo awaiting the harrowing as would all souls be in limbo. But over time, this notion of a place where you can go and you're not yet in paradise, it doesn't say that the poor guy's up in heaven. It says he's with Abraham. Well, where's Abraham? This notion starts to open up a crack in terms of where purgatory is. That is, It must be a location. It can't just be part of shale, an underground pit. It can't be levels of shale. It must be a different place altogether. And the text, again, doesn't say that the poor guy is in heaven. It says he's with Abraham. Well, where is that? In the parlance of theology, this is often called Abraham's bosom that he has gone to, you know, lean against Abraham's chest in the afterlife. Well, where's Abraham's bosom? This all starts to blow up more and more as theologians think about it. Augustine thinks a little about this. And what Augustine comes up with is this idea that there are four kinds of dead people. (laughs) There are the wholly evil. There are the mostly evil. There are the mostly good. And there are the holy good. Well, we know what happens to the, the holy evil. They go to hell. We know what happens to the holy good. They go to heaven. What happens to those other guys? The mostly evil and the mostly good. Well, Augustine seems to indicate that the mostly evil go to hell. Now we're left with the mostly good. Where do they go? Do they go straight to heaven? Part of the problem here, and let me just pull this out just a little bit more for you. Part of the problem here is you're talking about a religion that is based, Christianity, is based on martyrdom. Its initial impetus, its initial uh, starting engine is the martyrdom of the saints. Well, okay, if you're a saint and you're martyred, you're put to death for your faith, you clearly go straight to heaven. Ta-da, you're there. But what about the rest of us? What happens when Constantine converts and Christianity becomes the religion of the empire? Now what's the basis of the faith? What about, as I say, the muckaday people like me, the run-of-the-mill people? What happens to us? I'm probably not going to be martyred for Dante. (laughs) Well, I might be, but I'm probably not going to be martyred for Dante. So what happens to me in the afterlife? And this passage seems to indicate that there's some place that I can go 
for what? Refreshment? We talked about this in a previous episode of this podcast. This leads to this idea that the dead first go to a place where they kind of take a breath. The poor guy dies and he goes to be with Abraham. It doesn't say he goes to paradise or goes to be in heaven. It said he goes with Abraham, which is this opening lead of an idea that the dead go someplace to be refreshed, not to be tormented, not to pay penance for their sins, but somehow to be refreshed, to find themselves at peace before they move on to heaven. You can see here the slight crack between heaven and hell, and that crack is going to open up into a third realm entirely called purgatory. Here's another crucial moment, a moment that almost all theologians cite when it comes to purgatory. I'm in Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. I'm at chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, and these are just key ideas for what will happen in purgatory. Here's the passage. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it. The day, meaning the apocalypse, the judgment day. The day will disclose it, moving on in the passage, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, we assume that's the wood, hay, and straw, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. It's that last passage, only as through fire. That's the problem. What does that mean? How does that work? Now, you'll notice here, in this case, this is not a notion of purgatory as Dante will elucidate it throughout Purgatorio. Instead, this seems to be that on the last day, everything you do will be put into the fire, and what remains on the foundation is how you will be judged. But what does that mean, you'll be judged as through fire. Does that mean you're going into the fire? Many medieval theologians believe so, and it became part of the doctrine of purgatory that that means that not only your works, but you have to get in the fire. You have to be purified in some way. That little phrase, hanging off the back, which is difficult in the Greek and even difficult in the English translation, that little phrase makes that door crack open a little more. Okay, it's not just a place of refreshment. It's also a place in which your works and even you yourself are judged. And why would fire need to be applied to you? You can feel the notion of penance coming. Why would fire need to be applied to you, not just your works? That starts to open up this idea that purgatory is a place of torment, which is interesting, right? Because hell is a place of torment. Well, what's the difference? One is judgmental, punishing fire. The other, apparently, 
could be instructional fire or fire that leads you to recognize that you did, in fact, build with the wrong things. It's educational rather than retributive. It seems that that passage begins to open up that theology. And one more passage from the New Testament. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. I'm in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm at Paul's great hymn about how at the end of all, uh, every knee shall bow to recognize Jesus. So this is it. I'm really going to start verse 9. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is one of those moments when Paul seems to be arguing for a universalism that everybody say, because he does say every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But let's let's not go into that theological quagmire. Let's just step back and say, here's the problem. It's that bit. Every knee shall bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does that mean? There seem to be three locations, heaven, earth, under the earth. Well, under the earth sounds like Sheol. Heaven sounds like heaven, of course. But we're talking about some future day in which humanity is saved, some apocalyptic vision. Well, what's on earth then at that moment? Is it the living who are still here or is it more than that? And that tripartite division in that verse begins to open up this notion that there is a purgatory someplace here on earth. Where? Believe it or not, this was an enormous question in the Middle Ages. Where is purgatory? Some people wanted to settle it in the volcanic fires of Mount Etna. There was actual discussion that Etna may be the location of purgatory. But this was difficult because Frederick II, the Stupermundi, the wonder of the world, old Emperor Frederick II, He was judged a heretic by Dante and by others, too, and he did certainly court Islamic thinking. So you couldn't possibly have purgatory at a place where you had the old heretic Frederick, could you? No, that doesn't make any sense. Remember, in the Middle Ages, they don't have a notion of dimensionality. You might now think, oh, heaven and hell and purgatory, they lie in a different dimension from ours. But they don't have any notion of this in the Middle Ages or of alternate realities. So Dante has done what everybody else is trying to do. He has situated purgatory on the globe based on this Pauline tripartite division. And In this division, Dante has located purgatory not as some did in Ireland, not as some did in Sicily, not as some did in Jerusalem, but rather he's located it clear on the other side of the globe. It's still terrestrial. This is key. It is still part of this earth, and Dante is following Pauline theology by saying, okay, there's a 
bad place, there's a good place, but there's another place at the last judgment that is still part of this earth. What is that place? Oh, it must be purgatory. Where is it? Oh, it's on the other side of the globe. The As we found out, the land masses fled away when Satan fell down. This mountain came rising up from the hole dug by Satan. <laughs> I love that geologically. This mountain came rising up from the fall of Satan. Boy, that's going to cause us so many problems down the road, but let's just have it for now. And now here in this terrestrial environment is the place in which souls purgate themselves. It's just really important to remember how new this doctrine is and that Dante, our poet, is one of the great imaginers, the first setters of the vision of what this tertium quid, this third world, looks like. Okay, there was a lot to say and a lot of Bible verses, but I just think it's really important historically to consider purgatory and the questions around it. It's physicality, it's geography, where is it, why is it? This is new doctrinal territory Dante's in. He can use his imagination to the fullest, and he does, in my opinion, use his imagination to the fullest in purgatorio because this is the least set part of the poem as opposed to heaven and hell rate this podcast, subscribe to it, do all those things that you have to do to be on this journey with me. Thanks for being on the journey as always with me. Thanks for enduring these interpolated episodes that offer you some background into what you're reading and get ready because we are now ready to move on fully informed, fully in battle gear, trust me, for Cantos 3 and 4 of Purgatorio. Up next on Walking with Dante, I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then. Thank you.